0: Thank you, uh, Dr. Aiken and uh, and faculty uh, and uh, staff. It's uh, great to be with you all here tonight. What a great day we've had uh, looking at prophecy. And uh, we conclude tonight talking about the rapture and the day of the Lord. I had a... uh, experience uh, recently on the southwestern campus. We had a uh, small gathering, a luncheon over in the president's house with some uh, pastors and some uh, lay ministers. Actually, they were all board members, (laughs) board of trustee members. And I threw out a question in the lunch conversation. We got to talking about eschatology and I said, well, I said, what what do you see as the interest level in eschatology in the churches? And uh, one of the laymen spoke up and he said, Well, the people are very interested in it. The problem is the ministers won't talk about it. And that was pretty much confirmed around the table. The people are very interested in the topic, but the ministers won't talk about it. Why is it that the ministers won't talk about it? Well, <clears throat> there's an uncertainty among them because they graduated from seminaries where the faculty weren't sure what to do with it. And uh, so. Uh, the faculty weren't sure what to do with it because of changes that have happened in evangelicalism in the regard for and the assessment of eschatology. Now, <clears throat> the result is that some people say, well, we're just not going to talk about it. Uh, we won't mention, we won't preach on it, we won't get into those things because it's divisive. And while that might seem to be a reasonable strategy to avoid divisive topics, the problem is that the field of eschatology fills out that area which in Paul's writing he refers to as hope. In the letters of Paul, the maturity of the church is measured by its faith, its hope, and its love. A Pauline church is immature, if it's immature in faith, in love, or in hope. And to ignore the whole area of eschatology is to leave the church immature in their hope. In the scripture, that hope is the basis for Christian ethics. It's the basis for Christian living. It's the motivation for that. It's the motivation for endurance and perseverance in the Christian life, which I think we will see in some of the texts we look at tonight. In the Evangelical Academy, there is uncertainty as to what to do with it because of the critique on pre-tribulationism that has occurred within the Academy over the past 50 years. It's interesting here at Southeastern and at Southwestern we have a chair that's being established in pre-tribulational premillennialism and and so one feels the need perhaps to offer a kind of apologetic to the evangelical or the the faculty in the academy as to why uh, such a chair would be warranted when many uh, academics in evangelicalism feel that. You know, that's not warranted. The problem has come through the critique of pre-tribulationism in the academy, which goes back to the writings of George Eldon Ladd in the 1950s and those who have followed up from Ladd's critique. And the reason why that critique seems to be effective for many people is because In the 1950s, George Ladd brought an approach to the topic that seemed to be more up-to-date methodologically than the older um, pre-tribulational scholarly work. You see, when you go through the history of eschatological scholarship, you go back in the years and you can see changing methodologies to the way the Bible was handled. And pre-tribulationism benefited from an approach that we might call an analytical approach that was developed early in the 19th century and that pretty much held sway in the early 20th century in which the scripture text uh, was, uh, the riches of the text were brought out by an analytical method. And in the 1950s, what Ladd did was to bring a biblical theology approach to the text, which demonstrated that some things that the analytical method seemed to to uh, promote were not valid. For example, a distinction between the terms "kingdom of heaven" and "kingdom of God" in the Gospel of Matthew. A biblical theological approach looked at a writing in its uh, holistic literary uh, continuity, rather than, through the analytic approach, dividing things up and possibly assigning them to different meaning levels without regard for the coherence of the individual writing. So this newer approach seemed to have a whole lot more going for it, and in fact, it, uh, we've benefited a lot from that. However, what I want to suggest to you tonight is that actually a a more developed biblical theological approach to the topic, I would argue, actually favors pre-tribulationism. Now, some of you here tonight may identify yourself as pre-tribulationists and some of you may not. It's interesting in talking to uh, faculty, I, in my position, I interview prospective faculty a lot, and I'll ask, you know, where, where are you eschatologically? And the common answer says, well, I don't, I don't know, that's not my area, you know, I don't deal with that, but I'm kind of leaning post-trib. I don't really know, but I'm leaning post-tribulational. So what I want to say tonight is that if you don't become a convinced pre-tribulationist, maybe you could say, well, from what I understand of the text, I'm not really sure about everything, but I'm kind of leaning pre-tribulation. Okay? <laughs> what I want to encourage you to do tonight is to, do, to adopt what I would call a Thessalonian eschatology. Uh, You could even broaden that out and say, adopt a Pauline eschatology. And I know that there are some amillennial publications that talk about the Pauline eschatology. But I want to submit to you tonight that there is a Pauline eschatology, specifically a Thessalonian eschatology, that I think that a pre-tribulational position honors. And I think that... Rather than getting caught up in a lot of detail for the, the uh, healthy work together in the seminary and training pastors, we want to train people to be explicitly biblical. And uh, there, is a, there is a growth process in studying eschatology as there is in all theological areas. That growth process requires some time and it requires some intensive study. But if we can agree to be explicitly uh, biblical and what I would call a Thessalonian eschatology, then I think that we are at a point where we can train people to help the church to be mature in its hope. Now, let me ask you to turn, if you have your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. and This Thessalonian eschatology that I'm talking about is laid out very clearly in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Here is a church where Paul writes to them in chapter 1 and he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, in verse 2, Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk about how they came to faith through the gospel and that their faith has been made known through the entire region. People have heard how they have... In verse 9, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And, look at verse 10, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I want to suggest to you that in that verse 10, you have the encapsulation of this Thessalonian eschatology. They are waiting For God's Son to come from heaven, who will deliver us from the wrath to come. This is not the only place you find it in Paul's letters. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. He says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ they are waiting for the revealing that's the appearing of Jesus the coming of Jesus who will sustain us guiltless in the day note the association of the coming of Jesus and the day of the Lord Jesus Christ we find this in Philippians 3 verse 20 where Paul says our citizenship is in heaven and from it we are awaiting a savior We are awaiting a Savior who will change our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Note here that Paul is expecting that when the Lord comes, He is going to find some of us alive. And you notice the use of the pronoun. He will change our, that's Paul including himself, he will come and change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. This is what we are waiting for, he says in Philippians three, twenty and twenty one. Colossians three one to four, he says, This is how you need to understand it. You're already dead. You're already you're already dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears you're going to appear with him in glory so here we understand that we're already with him and our hope is fixed on his coming and when he comes we're going to be in glory with him at the coming Paul goes on to say therefore this is how you are to live now you're to consider that you're already dead and you're to put off the things that belong to your former manner of life that are corrupt through deceitful desires. And you're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So we've got this put off and put on. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian ethic. It's all revolves around the fact that our identity is in Christ in His death and in His resurrection and we're waiting for Him to come. In Titus 2. He says, This is the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the appearing of our great God and Savior. The grace that has appeared already, training us in godliness, has trained us to wait for the appearing of the blessed hope, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all iniquity, to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. That's the basis why we live the Christian life. Because we belong to Him and we're waiting for Him to come for us. 1 First Peter 1.13, First Peter, Peter says, put all of your hope on this. The whole thing focuses on this. Put all your hope on the grace that's coming to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's all fixed there. It's not fixed on an eschatological sequence of events. I'm not waiting for this to happen and that to happen and that to happen and then Jesus comes. All of my hope is fixed on the revelation of Jesus Christ and the grace that's coming to me when He comes. Peter, prior to that, says, you know, we've been born again to a living hope and now we suffer various trials, but these trials are for the testing of our faith, and we are looking for the revelation of Jesus Christ. All our hope is fixed there. Now, this that you find in Peter, and you find in all these places in Paul, is a consistent pattern. This hope, this Pauline eschatology is what pre-tribulationists call an imminent hope. We are in a posture of waiting, looking for Jesus to come, expecting all the hope is fixed on His coming. This imminency is based in Jesus' own teachings in the parables that He gave. For example, in the second part of the Olivet Discourse, when He talked about Uh, the master going on a trip and he puts his servants in charge and they are to carry on expecting that he could return at any time the problems come when they don't expect him to return anymore they they figure he's not coming He's not going to come it's going to be a long time before he comes and so they sink into dissipation and they don't do the work that's been given to do by the way The parables of Jesus indicate that this waiting that Paul talks about is not a do-nothing waiting. They're not just sitting there. In Luke uh, 19, there's that uh, word that in the King James is translated this way, Occupy until I come. The master leaves, and uh, in your newer translations it will say something like this, Engage in business until I come. You're to be active doing the thing that I ask you to do until I come. So waiting, waiting is a posture of being about his business, expecting him to show up at any time. It's an active kind of waiting, not a uh, do-nothing kind of waiting. Now, in First Thessalonians, he says, We uh, are waiting for his Son to come from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come, this coming of His Son from heaven is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. That is the rapture. The rapture is there. That's the explicit teaching on it. Jesus is going to come and bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. And we who are left until the coming of the Lord will be, after they are raised from the dead, caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That's the Lord coming now. He said in 1.10, we wait for Him to come from heaven. This is Him coming from heaven, coming for us, catching us to be with Him. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's the hope. That's the blessed hope, Titus 2.13, the appearing of our great God and Savior. We belong to Him. And we carry on the work, the work He's given us to do, until He comes. The question is, what is this? It says, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come? And this wrath to come is developed in First Thessalonians 5 as Paul goes on to talk about the day of the Lord. It is what he called in Romans 2 the day of wrath, a term that appears oftentimes in the Old Testament, Zephaniah uh, chapter 1. It is a day of wrath. It is what in Revelation uh, chapter 6 is the great day of the wrath of God. And of the Lamb. What is this day of wrath? I think to have a Thessalonian eschatology, to have a Pauline eschatology, we have to understand what this day of the Lord is. And here we have a problem. And the problem is that for many in the academy, it seems that they understand this day of the Lord as a a kind of a, a singular event of a manifestation of divine wrath in a concentrated period of time. And for many of them, they see that happening at the end of an eschatological sequence of events, the tribulation. This is promoted by George Eldon Ladd, who argued that when you come to the book of Revelation, you need to make a distinction between the wrath of man and the wrath of the devil on the one hand, and the wrath of God on the other hand. That what you see in the book of Revelation, the tribulation sequence, is the wrath of man, the wrath of the devil, but at the end, it's the wrath of God that's poured out that is the day of the Lord. Well, there's some problems with this. Some people think that this is supported in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. The second letter to the Thessalonians, the church is bothered by uh, the report, reportedly coming from Paul, saying the day of the Lord is here. The day of the Lord is here. And they're shocked. And they're really disturbed about it. And so he has to write them Second Thessalonians. And so in the second chapter, he starts off saying, well, now about the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to Him. There's the coming and the gathering is reasonably the rapture. He says, I don't want you to be dis- disturbed by any report that the day of the Lord has come. Because unless... The apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, They we're waiting for the conclusion to the sentence. He says, do you, do you remember when I was talking to you about that man of lawlessness? Do you remember who he is? Let me tell you about him. And Paul never finishes the sentence. That's not the only time in the writings of Paul where that happens. But see, when you have an English translation or any of the modern language translations, you can't... Have an incomplete sentence. (laughs) You've got to complete the sentence. So in your Bibles, you'll have something like this. Uh, Don't want to be disturbed by a report that the day of the Lord has come. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And do you remember I was telling you about the man of lawlessness and so on? But that phrase, uh, that day will not come... It's filled in by the translator. It's not in your Greek text. And in some translations, like the New American Standard, it'll appear in italics to show you that that's been added. So the question is, what did he intend to say? And a lot of people like that translation, for the day will not come, thinking that what he's saying is that the day of the Lord doesn't come until these events come first and then You have the day of the Lord. But it's just as possible that Paul is saying the day of the Lord is not here because there's this event, this event, this event, which are all elements of that day. And you're not in the day because you're not seeing the elements of the day, which are following a sequential pattern. Could be filled in for something like that day. Um. Could not be here or does not come or has not come unless this has happened first and that and that and that. At any rate, by the end of it, that chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, Paul says, go back and read the first letter. He says, don't worry about a reported letter from us. Read the letter we actually sent you. Hold, brethren, to the traditions as you were taught. What were they taught? They were taught in the first letter. So he sends us back to the first letter. It's in the first letter that we need to understand this, and then we need to apply that to the second letter to understand what he's saying. So, I would like to suggest to you that the idea that the day of the Lord is some kind of concentrated, divine-only wrath event as opposed to any kind of human manifestations of evil is wrong. And the reason for that is that it doesn't fit the Day of the Lord as a biblical theme. The Day of the Lord is not just a topic for the New Testament scholar to try to figure out within Thessalonians or within the New Testament. This is a canonical theme. It's a theme that goes back to the Old Testament. So that Paul's readers, Paul himself, in using this term is signaling a very well-known and understood feature, eschatological feature. And we've got to have this canonical understanding of it in order to understand what Paul is saying to Thessalonians. Now, we don't have time to, to look at this in detail because when we go to the Old Testament, we find <clears throat> the day of the Lord is not just a theme. It is arguably the theme of eschatology in the Old Testament. In addition to the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom that develops as a a theme, this is a major theme of eschatology. It goes all the way back to Exodus 32, when at Sinai, Moses had to intercede for Israel that had committed idolatry right there at Sinai and broke the first commandment. And God said, I'm going to destroy them all and begin over with you. And Moses intercedes for them and says, please don't do that and spare them. And so God said, you know, I will spare them. But, he says, nevertheless, on the day that I visit, I will visit their iniquity on them. And that statement then is picked up in the prophets. As Israel in the monarchical period slips into idolatry, the kind of idolatry that was seen way back at Sinai, and as that idolatry increases and supported by the house of David, the prophets begin to speak. Now, looking at it, at your canon of Scripture... You can see the importance of the theme as it appears as bookends of the prophets. It appears in Isaiah 2. The Lord has a day against all that is lifted up, against all that is proud and lofty. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The day that the Lord arises in splendor. That in Isaiah 2, at the beginning of Isaiah preceded by Isaiah 1 that talks about the sin of Israel and the fact that the Lord is going to refine His people. The theme appears at the end of your canon of prophets in Malachi 3 and 4. The Lord is coming, but who can endure the day of His coming? Malachi 4. That day is coming, burning like an oven, and the evildoers will be like chaff says now between isaiah and malachi the theme is developed repeatedly in the prophets even in the book of isaiah isaiah 2 and then isaiah 66 and isaiah 66 the lord will come in fire it says repeating the theme of the lord arising in splendor the splendor being the fire but then it changes the metaphor and says And with a sword. Because the fire and the sword are two of the major images of the day of the Lord. And in between those chapters, the beginning and the end of Isaiah, the theme is repeatedly referred to in Isaiah in various places. The day of the Lord is a theme in Jeremiah. We'll talk about that in a moment. It appears in Ezekiel. When we come to the twelve minor prophets or sometimes looked at collectively as the twelve, it is the theme. It occupies whole books like Joel. Joel is all about the day of the Lord. Zephaniah is all about the day of the Lord. Nahum is the day of the Lord. Obadiah is the day of the Lord. They're all talking about the day of the Lord. It is the theme. As a theme, when we look at it, You see that it can be described in a singular fashion. Joel, wail well, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's coming as destruction for the Almighty. It's coming as destruction, singularly described. But at the same time, it can be described as an unfolding sequence of events that are going to take place. It is a coming of God, as Isaiah 2 says. And that's repeated. Nahum, it's a coming of God that's happening. And uh, Micah describes at the beginning of Micah the coming of the Lord. In Habakkuk, the, it is a coming of God. But at the same time, it is also described as an eruption in the physical order or the international human order, social order, there is an eruption of calamity in that order. It's at the same time described in one way and as the other. It is, its basic pattern is a destructive event. A destructive event in which you have an invasion, like an army invading a land, destroying it as it goes... Coming to besiege a city, described as then besieging it, battle ensues, destruction of the city, and desolation. This is what we have in Isaiah 13. This is what we have in Ezekiel 7, the day of the Lord. This is what we have in Joel 2. Both in Isaiah and Joel, it is the Lord. The Lord is coming with His army. And Joel describes it. Here it comes with pestilence in front of him and plague behind him. And it's just destroying the land, which he illustrated in chapter 1 as a locust plague coming. But in chapter 2, it's an army that's coming and it's focused upon a city. And then he describes the destruction of the city, the besieging of it, and the destroying of it. The focus is on Jerusalem, as it is in Ezekiel 7. Isaiah 13, same pattern, but it's not Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Is Babylon. Same pattern, ensuing, And it is the Lord and His army. But at the same time, it's not the Lord writing visibly, manifestly, in theophanic form in front of the army. When you look at it from a human standpoint, it's an invading Gentile conqueror that's coming. I mean, this is what Habakkuk is all about. You know that he's, God says, "I'm sending the Chaldeans." And Habakkuk says, "How can you do that? They are wicked people." He says, "Nevertheless, I'm using them, and after I use them, I'm going to destroy them." And at the end, uh, Habakkuk calls it a day of trouble. I will wait for the day of trouble, and is described the destruction of the invader, the Chaldean. Army is described as God coming in theophanic glory and destroying the destroyer. But what happened? It was Cyrus the Persian who conquered Babylon and destroyed it. It's described as a destructive event. It's also described as a war mobilization with nations in battle, like a world war type of event that's happening. And oftentimes the imagery of slaughter and sacrifice, and you move like in Isaiah 32 from a sacrificial knife that's the imagery. The Lord has a sacrifice prepared, and the sacrificial knife is really the war sword of the military battle. But as it describes this, sometimes it puts them together in complex uh, constructions. Joel has. Two or three days of the Lord. One is this destruction that's been thrown against Jerusalem. And the other is the gathering of the nations in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. A kind of a combo day of the Lord. In some places, he speaks of the day beginning with the destruction of Jerusalem and then passing to other nations. You see this in Zephaniah. This is really what Amos is about. Many people go to Amos 5 where we have the exact phrase, the day of the Lord. But in fact, the whole book of Amos is about the day of the Lord. And a multinational um, destructive event that's happening nation after nation. As I said, Zephaniah speaks of this. Interesting that this is what we have in Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25 is about the day of the Lord. And the Lord enters in to judgment with all flesh, all nations, all people. It begins with Jerusalem. And as an apt illustration, he says, The cup of wrath will be given to Judah and Jerusalem, and then it will be passed to the nations. Nation after nation will drink it. Jeremiah 46, he takes this up again and starts... Basically, from the Battle of Carchemish, when the Egyptian army is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, who's taken the head of the Babylonian army, all the way, that's the rise of the, the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar, until the destruction of Babylon, that's one sequenced event described by the prophet. We're covering many decades here of time. Now, what you see is that most of these prophets are dealing with events in the um, 8th to the uh, 6th century B.C. And so we think, well, this day of the Lord is something that happened in the past. And it did, according to prophetic description. Until you get to the post-exilic prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and they're back. They've returned. Babylon's been destroyed. And these prophets are speaking of a future day of the Lord. Haggai, the shaking of all the earth, the shaking of all nations. Zechariah 14, the Lord uh, has this day in which the armies of the nations come against Jerusalem and destroy the city. And then the Lord destroys them. Same basic twofold pattern that we'd seen earlier is being predicted in the future by these prophets. Now, this is where Daniel comes in. Daniel, is Daniel prophecy or wisdom literature? Yes it's wisdom literature and it's prophecy and what is it doing the key to daniel which we can't spend a lot of time in is daniel nine in daniel nine daniel is meditating on jeremiah twenty five a prophecy a day of the lord prophecy and also in that chapter jeremiah speaks of the return from exile after seventy years and so Daniel is praying that God fulfill the promise and that they return from the exile and everything will be fine. And the angel comes and says, Daniel, yes, that day of the Lord's sequence will be over, but the end of sin is not yet. And that's the problem that Isaiah brought up. That's the problem going all the way back to Exodus. It's the problem of sin that calls forth the wrath of God. And so he says to Daniel, Daniel, uh, there's going to be a projection into time of 69 sevens of time. The, ten- the city will be rebuilt, the temple will be rebuilt, but after 69 sevens of time, they'll be destroyed again which is telling you that the pattern that was experienced in the past is going to replay. This is typology. The the type pattern is going to replay once again. And then Daniel is given a 70th 7, which is necessary to bring an end to sin. And that 77 sits kind of mysteriously with respect to the other sixty-nine. At the end of 69 sevens of time, the Messiah comes, the Messiah is cut off, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed. And then we have this 70th seven, somebody making a covenant for a seven and in the middle causing sacrifices to cease and then bringing in abomination and then it is destroyed by God. We can't develop it, but that pattern in this wisdom book is connected to an already given pattern in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapters 11 to 12, that is a pattern projected in 8, 11 to 12, within the 69 sevens, and the last in chapter 7 is coordinate with Daniel's 9's 70th seven. And it's a pattern of somebody coming, a conqueror, a warrior, Who perpetrates war on the earth. And he's the one that's going to bring the destruction on Jerusalem in Daniel 9. He's the one that's going to desecrate the temple. And he's going to be destroyed by God. And Daniel 7 tells you that the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Coordinate with the destruction of that one. And to him is given the kingdom. And the kingdom is the everlasting kingdom. This is Daniel 9, the everlasting righteousness. These things are coordinate. Well, that takes us then to Jesus. Because Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is speaking in the first century. Basically, the time period that Daniel was... From the time, Daniel says, that the decree is given to restore, uh, to rebuild the, the city and the temple... 69 sevens of time approximately puts you down in what we call the first century A.D. And Daniel says, the city is going to be destroyed. So here's Jesus. In Matthew 24, they've just come out of the temple. Herod has renovated, looks great. He says, not one stone is going to be left on another here. They say, tell us about that. So he does. It's the Olivet Discourse. And he gives them a pattern a pattern that is filled with imagery from the day of the Lord prophecies. There's a shaking of the earth, it's famine, it's darkness, there's signs in the skies and so on. And there are false Christs and there's persecution of the saints, which particularly comes out of Daniel. And then there's that desecration of the temple. He says, remember Daniel? He explicitly mentions Daniel. And then the time of great distress that happened. That desecration of the temple in Luke 21 is coordinated with the destruction of the city. The city will be destroyed as the armies come against Jerusalem. And then, at the end of that time period, comes the Son of Man in the sky. It's the basic pattern that we've been looking at. Jesus, at the end of that discourse, answering the question... When will these things be? The whole of this, he says, all up to the appearing of the sun or man in the sky will happen in this generation. But of that day as a whole, and I believe he's talking about this whole pattern, because this is a cohesive, coherent pattern that has replayed at this time already twice in history and is about to, is imminent to replay again and part of the pattern is going to replay, but the Son of Man did not, and at that time he was speaking, may not appear in that event. And if it doesn't, then the whole pattern projects into the future. And this is where we are with Paul. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them. He is quoting the Lord's words from the second part of the Olive Discourse. Particularly in Matthew and in Luke, The thief in the night. He comes as a thief in the night. I would have you notice that what Paul is concerned with here is how it begins. In this chapter, he's not interested in describing what happens in the day of the Lord, as he is concerned with its coming, its onset, its inception. It comes like a thief in the night. The concern is not the concern of, of, uh, of the, uh, you know, the police. They want to have evidence that the guy's actually robbing the house, you know, so there's a charge him. It's a concern of the householder. They don't want him entering the house, you know. And there is nothing to indicate that the thief is coming. Have you ever gone out? to your car in the morning and you have the heart sink because there's the glass of your window on the, on the, the uh, driveway because they just come during the night and ripped out, you know, something out of your car. You didn't know. I mean, if you'd known, you wouldn't have left it out on the street. <laughs> if you'd known, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have made it, or at least you maybe you would have stayed up, you know, to protect the car or whatever. But well, you don't. There's not anything indicating that it's coming. That's the thief in the night. It says, while they're saying peace and security, you say, when has there ever been peace and security? Right. So we're talking about a relative peace and security. And something that's not indicating uh, something bad is about to happen. Sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. The phrase sudden destruction comes upon them. Come upon suddenly is a construction that particularly emphasizes the onset of something. He is quoting the words from Luke 21 where the Lord says, Beware, lest that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So here you are, you're walking through the forest, you know, having a lovely day. And all of a sudden, your foot is caught in a trap. I hope not, you know, one of these iron traps could break your ankle, you know, suddenly. And you're in the trap. You had no idea there was a trap there. Now you're in it. And your experience of life has changed, okay? Or you've stepped in a snare. And now you're hanging from a tree. And you're now in it, all right? And now you have the trap experience of life. But before that, there's no indication that there's a trap there. It comes suddenly upon you. The emphasis is on the onset of it, which only makes sense if you've got something that's an extended event. See, if you have something that's just suddenly quick, then you don't have to talk about its onset. But here we've got a theme that's developed out of the Old Testament into the New, that's talking about an eschatological sequence of destructive events that are a coherent pattern. And Paul is emphasizing the beginning of that. And it's illustrated by the labor metaphor. Lest it come upon you like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. The prophets use the illustration of labor. Isaiah 13. Wail for the day of the Lord is coming. They will writhe in anguish like a, a woman in labor. So the labor pains is an image describing the intensity of the, of the distress and the trouble of that day. But that's not how he's using it. He's using it in the same way Jesus used it in the Olivet Discourse. When Jesus said, you know you'll hear of famines, earthquakes, and so on at the beginning of that day, but he says that's just the beginning of labor pains. And I've read commentators that say, you know, that's what he meant, it's it's just the beginning of labor. So don't pay any attention to that. You don't have to worry about that. And my observation is none of those commentators are women. (laughs) Uh, The beginning of labor is, oh, just the beginning of labor, you know, that's, you know. No no need to pay anything. When the labor starts, you know, you're in to a process. And this process is going to conclude. And it's going to get more painful, you know, until you get to its conclusion. That's how Jesus uses it. That's how Paul has used it. The day comes upon you suddenly like the beginning of labor. And that, again, underscores the extended sequence of events. It's not a punctiliar experience. What happens at the end of labor? Somebody appears. We have the Son of Man coming. This is the Olivet Discourse. He comes at the end because the whole earth is writhing in, in pain and distress because this is a day of wrath in which God is coming. Beware lest that day come upon you suddenly as a trap, Jesus says. Paul says, brothers, you don't have anything that needs to be written you. You know that the day of the Lord will begin suddenly, without warning, like the beginning of labor. And when it comes, they, verse uh, 3 here, He says, they will not escape. It's important to note the pronouns here. He speaks of them and you. They will not escape. It comes upon them like labor pain. But you, verse 4, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. Verse 8, we belong to the day. So the day begins, and it begins with destruction upon them. They cannot escape it. They are in it. They are in the process, and that process will move right on down to completion. Jesus illustrated the Alva Discourse with the parable of the budding uh, trees. When you see the leaves begin to appear on the tree, you know that summer is near. It moves right on down through its sequence. But you, it doesn't come upon you that way. Because, verses 9 and 10, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, whether we are awake or asleep. That takes you back to chapter 4. Some have fallen asleep in Jesus. God's going to, the Lord is going to bring them, Jesus is going to bring them with Him when He comes, and we who are alive and uh, waiting will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Whether we awake or, or asleep, that we might live with Him. We are waiting for His Son to come from heaven to deliver us from the wrath that comes. He is not destined us for wrath. He's destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, just as he said at the end of chapter 4, encourage one another with these words. This is a consistent eschatology. Now, why is it that it has this double effect? The onset, that's what you need to get from there. The, The beginning of the day has a double effect. It's destruction upon them, but salvation for you. Why? Because you belong to the day. It was said by Malachi, the day of the Lord is coming. It's burning like an oven. That burning like an oven picks up the fire of the Lord's appearing at the end of Isaiah. Isaiah 66 goes back to Isaiah 2. The Lord arises in splendor. That splendor is the fire of His coming. The day is coming burning like an oven. And the evildoers will be like chaff. It's coming with destruction upon them. But you, Malachi says, for you, the sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings. You see, for you, it's like the sun has come up. And you are children of the day. And in that day is life. And in that day is blessing. And in that day is joy, but the sun that rises to shine upon you comes as a fire of destruction upon them. The day of the Lord, from the Old Testament all the way to Paul, is a consistent theme I submit to you. It is a, it is a complex of eschatological events. Paul describes some of these events in chapter in Second Thessalonians 2. He talks about the appearing of the man of lawlessness. He quotes from Daniel 11, the guy who exalts himself above every so-called God. That's the guy in the pattern in Daniel 11 who appears in Daniel 9, who causes the sacrifice to cease in the temple. It's the same guy. What Daniel described as a person... The other prophets described as a nation. The nation that comes is hurled against Jerusalem. But the nation is led by somebody. And that somebody then, as Paul describes, a man of lawlessness is described by John in 1 John as the Antichrist. And is picked up in the book of Revelation as the beast who is given authority. The one who is destroyed. By the Lord at His coming. The same basic pattern. In order to understand the day of the Lord, you have to have in your theology something more than an understanding that God deals with individuals. That's absolutely core, that's absolutely central. He deals with us as individuals. You can't be saved except to be saved individually. But the work of God with His creation is more than working with individual humans he deals with the entire created order and he deals with human life in its corporate dimensions that's the nations he actually has a plan for nations and that plan for nations finds itself consummated in revelation 21 and 22 in the New Jerusalem when the nations have access to it. Do you have that in your eschatology? That's important to understand the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom over the entire earth and over nations of peoples on the earth. And if you have that as a category in your theology, then you can understand how God has a place and a plan for a nation called Israel. And how working on the national level, he brings into fulfillment that which is necessary to procure our individual salvation. The day of the Lord is a day in which God is dealing and manifesting the wrath that comes against his entire created order. And brings a eruption of calamity that's expressed throughout that order and in the social and national relationships of peoples. And that finally consummates itself on the individual level when after the millennial kingdom there is the great white throne judgment in which individuals are cast into hell who are not redeemed by the Lamb. This is the wrath of God. It is not an issue of the wrath of man versus the wrath of God. God uses human and natural instruments in the expression of this wrath that's called the Day of the Lord. So I want to encourage you, as I think we all need to have, a Thessalonian eschatology. And the Thessalonian eschatology is that we have a posture. We're waiting. We're waiting for His Son to come from heaven, who will deliver us from the wrath to come. And we understand that wrath to come as the day of wrath, as Zephaniah describes it. It is the day of wrath in which God deals with the human problem of sin in all its dimensions. Not only at the individual level, but at its corporate, social, national levels, and its effect throughout the entire creation. And what he brings in through that day as the dark moves to light is a kingdom, as Daniel describes it, that is everlasting in righteousness. Peter said, put all your hope, all your hope. On the grace that's coming to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. I believe that pre-tribulationism embraces that hope. You may have another tribulational view, but at least I would say you need to embrace this explicit hope. May God bless us in doing so.
1: Dr. Blazing, thank you so much uh, for something that I, I have found very, very helpful in your explanation of the day of the Lord. Uh, we are now going to take some questions, and Dr. Blazing, if you'll be prepared to answer them, uh, this will give uh, different ones an opportunity to uh, follow up with questions that may have come to mind as they heard your lecture. And uh, also, there, there, we have our other speakers of the, of the day. If there's questions, comments that they want to make, uh, we want to give them an opportunity also. So at this time, um, let me, let me start uh, by one question I have on Second Thessalonians chapter two. And it gives a description of the things that are going to happen during the day of the Lord, or at least seems to be at the beginning. Um, there are some who point out, or some who say, "Well, I don't see an explicit reference to the rapture." You answered that so very well. Then there are others who interpret, which says, "If there is, if there must be a great falling away." First, There's an apostasy. Yes, there are some pre-tribulationists who've tried to interpret that to be a reference to the rapture. Can you give me a, 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 a give a quick answer as to why that is not your interpretation? Ishayler English
2: uh,
0: brought forth a view that apostasia, which literally means departure, uh, might actually be the rapture. So he's saying, you know, that uh, first the the, the, the departure which is the rapture. Then the revelation of the man of lawlessness. That would certainly seem to fit a pretribulational scenario. The problem is that apostasia, the noun, whereas the verb might have a, a sense of spatial departure, the noun is not used, it's pretty consistently used to mean a moral departure. Now, I've seen some recent stuff where some people have tried to argue that, well, maybe, you know, there's something here. But I think that... Uh, Generally, it's uh, safer and more consistent with the use of the word to see that Paul is talking about what we call, in a way we've translated the word, an apostasy. uh, Some kind of a a doctrinal or moral uh, departure. Now, the problem is that Paul doesn't, you know, he doesn't explain there. Uh, you know, a little later on, he says in that same chapter, he says, Don't you remember that I was telling you these things? And we wish that they would have written him back and said, No, Paul, we really have forgotten it all. Would you, would you write us now a letter that goes into great detail on everything that you have to say about this? Because we don't remember that. But they didn't do that, so he didn't do that either. And so, as one commentator said, you know, Paul and the Thessalonians knew what he's referring to, but we're not sure because he didn't elaborate There's been
1: times it. I've talked to Second Thessalonians. He'd say, now don't you remember when I said that? No, I don't <laughs> remember that. I wasn't there. I'd love for you to go ahead yeah. and spell that. All right, questions you might have. Here's one right here. Say, stand and say your name, please, and then give your question. Charles Swanson, do you see the thousand-year millennium as being contained in the day of the Lord because in the prophets it speaks of blessings of the day of the Lord as well, like... The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all that. Yes, so does the day in the Lord include the blessings of the millennium?
0: Uh, they include that includes the millennium, but not because of, of those passages that you mentioned. For me, it includes it because of Isaiah 24 and 25. Isaiah 24 is a typical day of the Lord passage. We have the shaking of the earth. Here comes the Lord in judgment and the shaking of the earth. And here comes the destructive event. Here it comes, you know, against the city. And uh, then he says, and the Lord will gather the hosts of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on the earth and they will be imprisoned for many days. It's the only place in the day of the Lord prophecies where we have that. Now that language shows up In Revelation 20, here comes the Lord in Revelation 19 uh, and the armies of the Antichrist that are opposing him. And he destroys them like many of the Day of the Lord prophecies predict, Joel, two others. He destroys them. And then in Revelation 20, here comes an angel with a key to the pit opens a pit, a great chain, and binds the devil and imprisons him for a thousand years. There's that imprisonment theme which is part of the day of the Lord prophecy. Now in Isaiah 24, that uh, imprisonment for many days takes place with the rain having already begun. It says, Then the Lord will, you know, Rain and glory, shine and glory. And we move right to Isaiah 25, where uh, the great banquet for all the peoples and the Lord uh, takes the shroud that lies over the peoples. He will remove death for all time and they, He will uh, wipe away all tears. This is the language of Revelation 21. He will wipe away all tears and death will be no more. That comes after the imprisonment. In isaiah 24 and that's the pattern in revelation 20 and 21 so here comes the day of the lord but there's this imprisonment complication and the imprisonment delays the final execution of the judgment which takes place at the end of what revelation calls a thousand years and then the devil is thrown into hell And there is the final resurrection and the condemnation and throwing into hell of those who are not, names are not in the book of life. And then we move into that eternal scene of Isaiah 25. That's why I think that the millennium is part of that day structure, because it's imprisonment time delaying the final execution.
1: All right. Good question. Good question. I have a question right here at the front. Uh, Hold on one second uh, so you be on the microphone. Yes. Yes, because we're being live streamed, and that way they'll be able to hear your questions. Um,
0: The millennium does not really bring up so many questions for me. It's the new heaven and the new earth where I kind of wonder what's going on. Um, Because, you know, you have the the leaves of the trees is for the healing of the nations, and you have the new heaven, which seems to be the new Jerusalem and all the cubes, you know, floating around in space, but then you have the the nations on the earth, and I don't. know I'm having a hard time kind of putting those two things together. Yeah. Do you? Well, <laughs> it's a it's a great question. Uh, it's a good question. There are basically two views. I'll not get into a long detail on it. The question is, what does eternity eternity look like? And there is a long tradition in the Christian uh, tradition. That views eternity as a kind of a, of a spiritual ecstasy. You know, so it describes heaven as a kind of ecstatic, you know, unending you know. But then there is another view that describes it, what I call as a new creation, which is a created order, and life taking place in, a, in the kind of sequenced life that we know it. The first view is a timelessness. The second is a sequence. The first view is eternal. The other is everlasting. And I believe that the latter is more appropriate to the Bible. Look, Revelation 21 like, and 22, like all of Revelation, yes, does have a lot of imagery in it. And the question is, well, how do you interpret the imagery? The key is realizing that the book of Revelation is probably the most intertextual book in the Bible. That is, that it has phrases, words, phrases that are echoing former scripture. It's intentionally linked to that to make you think back to that scriptural context. With that, I say, you come into the book of Revelation with an understanding of what the canon of Scripture has been telling you about the everlasting kingdom. And that's what it's been saying uh, from Isaiah 11 to Isaiah 65 to throughout uh, to Daniel's uh, everlasting kingdom. You have a kingdom that's going on and on and its life and its life on the earth created a new, renewed, the heavens renewed in which the glory of God is manifested and God's dwelling is with us. So there are nations on the earth. There the nations are the nations of all the redeemed on the earth. All who are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. There is the unity, the spiritual unity of that everlasting kingdom and that new creation. There are some descriptive phrases of it. Finally, we have to say with Paul, we really can't express all the glory that's coming. But it is life. It's not just a timeless trance that's going to happen.
1: Are you comfortable with uh, the way someone like Randy Al- Alcorn would say that the new heavens and the new earth will be more similar than dissimilar with this present age, minus the effects of sin?
0: I think that is correct. It is more similar than it is dissimilar. However, it is dissimilar because effects of sin are great. Yeah. It's also dissimilar because the inhabitants of the new creation are resurrected. We're in resurrection or translated bodies and that's a glorified bodily presence that we have there and that's a glory that is dissimilar to now but it's similar because it's ongoing life i like what herman hoyt wrote when at the end of his book on the end times he ends with this question so what will it be like what will eternity be like will we be bored Be playing our harp on the cloud, I mean, what if i don 't like music? I mean you know I just you know I mean, can I play the same song i have there's one theologian who uh who who envisioned eternity as being the same song being played over and over and over again. He thought that was a good thing. it just yeah. didn't sound good to me, so uh a heavenly nursing home yeah <laughs> but uh but it's it's ongoing life and and Hoyt says. We have work to do. This is what we were created to do. He created us, put us on the planet, and said, keep it. And bring forth its glory. We have work to do. And that work is fulfilling. And we do it to the glory of God. And it's unending. Because we're in a creation that's immense. And God has tasks for us that take up eternity. uh, And everlasting
1: work. So... That's as close that I can come to it, I think. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Next question. Back here in the back. John, uh, yes. Just the significance of the uh, final temple sacrifices being...
0: Yeah. Uh, many dispensationalists go to Ezekiel, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, where we have the, uh, a temple vision. Uh, Ezekiel sees a temple. He describes it in great detail. Measurements and all, and the activities that go on there. That temple is not the uh, Solomonic temple, and it's not the temple of Zerubbabel from the activities that go on in it. It's, it's uh, some distinctive features to it. But it does have sacrifices in it. So, <clears throat> many have said, well, you know, there is going to be this millennial temple in the millennium, and uh, the Jews will offer sacrifices and uh, and then others say, well, how can that be? I mean, Hebrews 10 says the blood of bulls and goats don't take away, you know, sin. And Jesus said, you know, has prepared a body for me. And so he comes in the body, and so he's done away with all those sacrifices. How could that happen? And so then the response is, well, yeah, but it's sort of like the Lord's Supper. It's a memorial. They're not doing it, you know, in order to have the sins for again. They're remembering the Lord, and they're doing it in this way. So how do you answer this? Well, let me just have a little caution. There are no sacrifices that are going to take away sin. There's only one that does that. Remember that in Ezekiel, you have a lot of visions, and just like we were talking about in the book of Revelation, you have to realize that you've got imagery in the vision. How do you interpret that imagery? Is this an extended, long metaphor of something? But then the question, well, what is it a metaphor of? Let's cut to the chase here. Let's go this way. Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper. He says to them in Luke's gospel, I will not eat this Passover again with you until we eat it in the kingdom. He's going to eat the Passover in the kingdom. The Passover is not just bread and a cup, there's meat in the Passover. I mean, otherwise, it's not the Passover, is it? And he says that. Well, there is this prophecy in Isaiah of the great banquet. I mean, look at that in Isaiah 25. There's a lot of meat in Isaiah 25. You know, they're eating a lot of meat. They're on the mountain. Well, let me approach it this way. <clears throat> is it likely that there will be a temple in the millennium? Okay, let's think. Jesus comes back to the earth. Now, has he lost his body? No. He still has an embodied presence. And with an embodied presence, that means he's localized. Okay? Where will he be? He will be in Jerusalem. He will not be in Wake Forest or Dallas or Fort Worth. He's going to be in Jerusalem. Now imagine the nations, Isaiah 2, coming up to worship the Lord. The Lord is there. He's there in bodily form. Do you think that He will meet them out in a field somewhere? On the street corner? I think that there will be a glorious building in which He will meet them. and which He will be worshipped. Because the God who was invisible in the temple is now visible. The curtain has been torn and he's there to be worshipped. Yeah, I think there will be a temple. What all will happen in it and how much of Ezekiel is imagery and how much is literal? I guess we'll find out when that temple service takes place and the Liturgy, if we want to use that non-Baptistic word, but the worship service that takes place in that temple, as designed by the Lord Himself, unfolds. That's
2: about as close I think I'll come to it. Question here. Uh, great presentation, by the way, sir. Um, this is about what people have described as the so-called delay of the Parousia. That is the delay of the Second Coming. Like when Jesus uh, gives his Olivet discourse and he says, "All these things won't happen until, until this this generation will not pass away." And so, and some people have said, "Well, Jesus thought he would, his hearers would, would witness his re- his return." Um, obviously, that hasn't happened, so they're saying, "Well, how do we interpret Jesus' words in the Olivet discourse?" Um, I heard a view saying that Matthew and different gospel writers kind of use their different writing conventions in sort of thematic ways to kind of apply Jesus' different discussions that he talks about in all of the discourse. I just wanted to see, like, what your, your thoughts on that. In terms I don't of think
0: we have to resort to special literary conventions or any of that to understand it or any kind of accommodation or anything like that. Look, uh, this language comes into that part of the discourse, which I say is the conclusion of the first of two parts, uh, and this is uh, Matthew twenty-four thirty-two to 35, which is the parable of the budding trees. Uh, and so he says, uh, when the branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So when you see, this is the key of verse 33. When you see all these things, remember the phrase, all these things, you know that he is near at the gates. So what's not included in all these things? His appearing. All these things, and you know He's near. That's His coming. Then He says, 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What are all these things? They are all the things up to His coming. And so, what he's saying is that all these things, which is the pattern of the day of the Lord, here comes, uh, Luke describes it as here's the armies surrounding Jerusalem. Matthew and Mark, here's the desolation of the temple. All right? And the great distress that happens with that siege destruction of the temple and the city. uh, All this is coming upon this generation. But. Verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Well, yeah, we know, because when you see the trees begin to bud, you know, you just count it on down. Now, he's not talking about that, I suggest to you. He's talking about this whole event complex, this pattern that includes the coming. And of that day, whether that's going to be in the first century or that's going to be projected as a type into the future to be replayed is not known at that time. We have the advantage of being on this side of 70 A.D. So the event sequence took place. Jesus did not come, which means following his words, the whole pattern is projected into the future. And this is what the book of Revelation, Revelation 11, the temple has been destroyed. The court has been given over to the Gentiles. And yet we're expecting the great day of God Almighty to come. And this pattern is going to unfold in the future. So I think following the language, we can see that he's talking about a typology. Uh, It's not necessary to say he's accommodating anything. He's dealing with a... A type that's going to play out in his generation in that day that if it's not the Father's will, that that be the time. Remember Peter says in Acts 3, Jesus has gone into heaven until the time set by the Father, at which time he will come. Okay. So Jesus says in Matthew twenty-four, thirty-six, only the Father knows, not even the Son knows, the Father knows. But if this is not the time in this generation, the event complex will play up to the appearing of the Son of Man, and then the whole pattern projects into the future to be replayed as the day of his coming, yet future. That's how I understand that.
1: All right. One more question. We have time. Yes, right here, right here at the front.
2: I ask this question not to not to challenge your view of the, the pre trib rapture. Um, sure, you unfortunately, are. <laughs> unfortunately, I fall in the category of one of the fellows that you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of, well, I might be this way or might be this way. But uh, Jesus, all of the discourse, Matthew 24, we just referenced to, uh, verse 9, you know, first off, he opens up with a warning against apostasy. In verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you. This is getting back to your them and you language that you referenced earlier. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Uh,
0: Would your question be, who are the you? Is that your your question on that? Okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, look, uh, pre-tribulationists uh, do not deny the fact that there will be believers in the tribulation. I see, you know, these as believers in the tribulation. Um, what we see putting the scripture together is, and this is what uh, Dr. Ronell Rodelnick was talking about earlier today, is, and also Dr. Watson was referring to this uh, in some of the Puritan eschatology, that the rapture event would be the event at which there is a turning. Uh, even though there's great deception coming, there is a turning on the part of some to the Lord. Now, this happens after the rapture, and there are believers. He is speaking to his disciples there in Matthew 24. You. Persecution. They will persecute you. They will hand you over. You know. Remember, and this is a wonderful theological problem, that Jesus doesn't know. Whether the destruction that's going to happen in 70 A.D. was just a few years from when he's speaking... Which he says is going to happen to that temple and to that city. He does not know whether that will be the day of the Lord that brings in the everlasting righteousness. He says, only the Father knows. And so, that pattern is going to play out. And it's either going to play out on those disciples if it comes in their lifetime. Or it's going to play out on others. In fact... All except John were dead by the time we get to 70 A.D., for all we know. So none of them were the U, except maybe John. So the U has type significance. It's talking about believers. There will be believers there who are going to suffer persecution. Look, it's this way. I put it maybe a little differently than some others, But the way I put it together is this. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we are waiting for His Son to come from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. So He does. And all of us, He brings the dead, and all of us who are found alive at that rapture, which happens at the onset, the beginning of the day, catches us up to be with Jesus. And then the day of wrath comes. But do you remember... Uh, Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk has this plea to the Lord. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Mercy, which is the thing that Jesus harangued the Pharisees and Sadducees for not knowing. He says, this comes from Hosea 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, if you'd known this, you wouldn't have accused the innocent. God desires mercy. And in wrath. He will remember mercy. And that's why there are this there are these that repent. And there is this the hundred and forty-four thousand of Israel's sealed servants. And there are there are this great multitude that come out of the tribulation that wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and they overcome the Satan and the beast by the word of their testimony and by the blood of Jesus, because in wrath he remembers mercy. And these believers, however, are going to face intense persecution. I'm not saying that in their individual experiences, it's worse than what the church has experienced in the persecutions in the history of the church. However, that day is a special day unto the Lord. It is a manifestation of His judgment. And that's why, as others said, it's coordinate with the hope of, but 1 Thess 5, 9, 1 Thess 1, 10, that he's coming to deliver us from that wrath. And as he does it, and the wrath unfolds, in that wrath he remembers mercy, and there will be some who come to the Lord. And they are the you, I think, that he's talking about in that passage.
1: Mm-hmm.